Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Public swimming pools serve as community gathering spaces, havens from the heat in the summer months, and safe and affordable places for people to learn to swim. But public pools in the U.S. have become increasingly rare over the past century, and it may be one reason only about half of Americans know basic swimming skills, according to the American Red Cross, or why drowning remains one of the leading causes of death among children. This hour, we look at what drove the decline of the public pool and the rise of the private backyard pool, especially in California. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The United States is, for a majority of its citizens, a swimming desert. That's what a recent New York Times op-ed by Mara Gay declared. Too many people don't have access to safe places to swim or to learn how to swim. And we are all suffering for it. Drowning is the leading cause of death among one- to four-year-olds. And it's the second leading cause of accidental death among five- to fourteen-year-olds, with black children three times more likely to drown than their white peers. Public swimming pools have been one way of providing a safe place to swim or access to free or low-cost lessons, but they are few and far between in the U.S., including here in California. We look first at why, and joining me now is Heather McGee, public policy advocate and best-selling author of The Some of Us. So great to have you back on Forum, Heather. Glad to be with you. So one thing I learned from your book is that it wasn't always this way. There was a time, especially around the New Deal, when public dollars went into investing heavily in public pools. Can you tell us about that? You're exactly right. In the in the 1930s and 40s, there was a building boom of public goods, roads, bridges, libraries, schools, parks, and these public swimming pools that are really not like the kinds that probably come to mind when you and I think of a neighborhood pool. These were huge 
grand resort style pools that could often hold thousands of swimmers at a time. Funded with public money, open to the public. There was a public health imperative behind them. There was a civic imperative. There was a sense that this was going to be a melting pot for America's immigrants. Uh, And yet, of course, there was, as there was for all of the public goods of the New Deal, from social security to housing, uh, an asterisk, right? Most of these swimming pools were segregated or for whites only all across the country. Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons public pools were closed down, but a key one is racism. What happened when Black communities began to press for equal access to these public pools, Heather? Well, we used to have about 2,000 grand resort-style public swimming pools in the country. And as I said, the vast majority of them were segregated. uh, And that led to a massive disparity uh, in who could swim and who Uh, have the safety of a, you know, lifeguarded public swimming pool. And so increasingly over the years, many Black children were losing their lives um, in very high profile drownings that caused flashpoints for movement building and agitation. And although, of course, Black communities had a lot of things that we wanted integrated in the first half of the 20th century, uh, from schools to jobs, there was something about the public swimming pools and the stories like in Baltimore, Maryland, a little 13-year-old boy named Tommy Cummings who drowned because there were only Black-only and white-only swimming pools. And he had a, a clique of best friends that included two Black and two white boys. And so they had nowhere they could swim together in Maryland in the early 1950s. And so they swam in the Patapsco River and, and Tommy drowned. And he wasn't the only Black boy to lose his life that summer And so the NAACP sued and you began to see success in the courts, right, where families and litigants were arguing, hey, it's our tax dollars that have funded those public pools, too, as Black families, and and we deserve to be able to swim, too. But in response, uh, many towns and cities found every possible way to destroy the public good that was these public swimming pools. Oftentimes, they would... Um, stop investing in them as white uh, swimmers refused to go to the now integrated pools. Uh, There were a number of schemes where towns and cities would sell or lease their public pools to a private club that was not under the desegregation order and so could have a membership roster that only included white people. Uh, The YMCA was actually a frequent partner in this scheme to keep a public good, uh, private and and exclusive. And then in many very high profile instances, towns just literally the day after the integration order uh, was to go into effect, backed up truckloads of dirt and gravel, drained out the water, filled in the pools, closed down their public pools to avoid integration. It, It really is a Uh, An unbelievable story when you hear uh, people who are not that old talk about watching the cement trucks uh, filling in the pools. And it is such a glaring example of something I write about throughout my book in terms of all of public policy, the way that racist policies can have an impact on everyone. The entire community loses out when we drain the pool, obviously the literal one, but also the figurative one, the pool of public resources because we're unwilling to share across lines of race. Yeah, and the full title of Heather's book is The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How 
we can prosper together. I want to bring Pat Morrison into the conversation. Pat's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, who also looked at how Southern California became the land of private swimming pools. Pat, thanks so much for coming on Forum. It's a pleasure. So sadly, it sounds like, based on reading your research, that California was not an exception to the kind of segregated or racist history of public pools and what happened and their demise. Can you give us some examples of things that happened here? Well, far from it to this day in Los Angeles County, we have a quarter of a million private pools and maybe 60 public pools. We have, what, 10 million people in Los Angeles County and 60 public pools. Uh, A lot of our problems started, as um, Ms. McGee was talking about, when the public pools that were around in the 20s in the City Beautiful movement, they were segregated, but there were still pools when those pools started to disappear. And what happened in Los Angeles was that after the Second World War, the good life was what we were hearing extolled. The San Fernando Valley, land was cheap, houses were cheap under the GI Bill, and the technology meant that in your backyard, you could have a swimming pool installed in a day. Now, the whole philosophy of life in Los Angeles then revolved around the single family home, your front yard, your backyard. And that meant that public spaces were shrinking. Why did you need a park if you had a pool in your backyard? And so this disappearing of shared public civic civic, municipal recreational spaces was exacerbated by the fact that people said, I want a house. I want a pool for my kids to play in. The public pools in Los Angeles officially segregated in 1925. And a number of people went to court to try to break that up. There were days that were called, well, reserved days, which was a polite word for segregated. One day a week, they let people of color into the swimming pools. And that was the day that they drained the water at the end of the day and Mm -hmm. rebuilt it so white people could use it for the rest of the week. I mean, in Pasadena, the city of Pasadena had a public pool and it didn't integrate its pools until 1947. Um, This this particular public pool opened in 1914. Whites only except on Wednesdays when black activists protested. Pasadena said, okay, now our pool is for white people only all the time. And this is Jackie Robinson's town. This is where he grew up and he remembered Pasadena as a place where we saw movies from segregated balconies, swam in a municipal pool only on Tuesdays, and were permitted in the YMCA one night a week. He said people in Pasadena were less understanding than Southerners and even more hostile. At one point, Pasadena, as Ms. McGee was referring to, just simply closed its pool because it didn't want to have to deal with this problem. Yeah, there were some incredible stories in your reporting about anti-Black racism um, contributing to the way Pasadena decided to uh, resist integrating its pool. Also, the the stories about International Day, which was also the only day when Latinos and Asians could swim at the pool as well. And the incredible story of Sammy Lee, who was like the first Asian American man to earn gold medals in Olympic Games. But because he couldn't swim but one day a week, the rest of those days, he he dove into like a homemade sandpit or something. His coach dug a sandpit in, in Sammy's backyard. I met Sammy Lee uh, and what an impressive man. His, his coach dug this sandpit in Sammy's backyard 
and put in a homemade diving board so Sammy could practice those other six days a week that he was not allowed in the Pasadena swimming pool. He won gold medals in diving events in two different Olympic games. Just an incredible story. So Heather, when we think about just how basically, you know, inaccessible these pools were to the full public, do you draw a direct line to the disproportionate share of drowning deaths among Black youth, Indigenous youth, um, other communities of color, and this history, this racist history? You absolutely have to draw that line, and you don't have to go far. I mean, you know, there's a sort of um, folklore, a sort of common wisdom uh, that in Black families, you know, most folks um, have a complicated relationship with the water. Um, And there is something so fundamental about having like a public school and a public library, a public pool that allows people regardless of their income and particularly children in the summer months when school is out, there's nowhere else to go to escape the heat, to be supervised, to be with peers that's free. That is what helps create swimmers. And we know that there's a very high correlation between swimming skills and communities with public, not private, not membership only swim clubs, not private swimming pools and backyards, not uh, homeowners association uh, swimming clubs, uh, but rather public pools. And so we see that disparity. We see the disparity in general in access to green space and recreation space. Um, but it is the swimming skill that ends up being life or death so often. We're talking about the history of public pools in the U.S. and California, the reasons behind their decline and how their closures continue to impact all of us today. We're talking with Heather McGee, author of The Some of Us, also former president of Demos, a public policy think tank. Pat Morrison, a columnist with the Los Angeles Times, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Did you have access to a public pool growing up or, or do you now? What do you remember about it? Do you think access to a swimming pool, public or private, or a safe body of water affected your ability to swim or your relationship to water? As Heather was alluding to, would you support greater public investment in creating or converting to public pools? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we look at what's next for the Pac-12, the historic college sports conference of the West Coast that disintegrated last week. Today, we're looking at the history of public pools in the U.S. and in California, what's behind their decline and their ripple effects. We're talking with Pat Morrison, columnist for the Los Angeles Times that looked at how Southern California became the land of private swimming pools, and Heather McGee, author of The Some of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And you, our listeners, are sharing memories of your public pools, your relationship to water, and what connection you think it had to access to swimming pools, whether public or or private, what you think about greater investment in public pools. You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post questions or thoughts on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads. We're at KQED Forum. And Jesse writes, I grew up in Fresno in the 1960s. My experience in life revolved around the Calwa Public Pool and Community Center. We were an integrated public that flourished and nurtured our growing minds and bodies. I credit the joys and success of my life to experience public pool accessibility. You know, Pat, you were talking about some of the things that contributed to the growth of backyard pools in California. One of the other ones that I was struck by was Hollywood. What role did Hollywood play in this? Well, Hollywood, from its early days, even with silent picture stars, had a sense that luxury had to go along not just with what was on screen, but with their lifestyles. And so you would see the columns of the L.A. Times filled with references to fancy swimming pool parties, 1924. It's like real estate porn when you're reading about <laughs> these, these lavish pools and and the catered uh, uh, barbecue parties that they served around them. And there was one B Pictures actress named Constance Moore who put in a new pool and celebrated by having her guests put their handprints into the wet cement around the edge, which is very clever. And probably realizing that she wasn't a good enough actress ever to get her handprints at Grauman's <laughs> Chinese Theater. But but soon a pool became integral to some storytelling. I mean, think of The Graduate, where you see Benjamin Braddock waddling out to the swimming pool. It's the place where he escapes from the yammering of his parents and his parents' friends. And, and Sunset Boulevard opens with the scene of Joe Gillis, this kept man and screenwriter floating floating face down in the pool of a mock hacienda and saying, poor dope, he always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got it as as well as bullets in the back. I mean, boogie nights, poltergeist, the swimming pool in poltergeist is the pit of hell. But, But it became symbolic of the good life, the beautiful life. And I think so after the Second World War, people thought of Los Angeles, they thought of Hollywood, and they thought, I want a piece of that, too. So Hollywood planted this idea in our heads a long time before we were able to achieve it. Yeah. And you touched on that it was cheaper to do a pool or that we developed the know-how to do it quickly, and that also played a big role. in that. How did we do that? How did that come to be? Well, the technology got a lot cheaper and faster. There was a prefab molded pool that was created that could be dropped right into that hole that you dug in the backyard. It was like, you know, one piece pool, Marilyn Monroe's one piece swimsuit. This was every man's dream. Now, never mind that you had to clean out the leaves and that insurance was expensive. If you had a pool, you were somebody. And so the technology that made this happen made 
Los Angeles, a place where when artist David Hockney flew in one cold British winter and saw these swimming pools like opals across the landscape, he said, oh, this is the place for me. And some of his best paintings have been of swimming pools in Southern California. Pat, do you think that racism or, or a desire to avoid the racial tensions that were playing out um, played a role in the appeal of backyard pools in, in California? I think it played a tremendous role. I think mm. part of it was inadvertent, but uh, having your access to your own backyard, to your own recreation meant that you didn't have to, as a middle-class white voter, demand swimming pools from your city, from your public agencies. And the people who did need them, people of color crowded into apartments in the more urbanized parts of town may have had a vote, but their voices were not regarded. They were not heard. So there was no need, there was no clamor among people that City Hall was listening to for the kind of public parks and the kind of public pools that would have given access, that would have given the kind of swimming lessons and training that um, uh, that we were talking about with Miss McGee a little earlier. And yeah. even though the pools were integrated in the 1930s by court order, as late as 1968, Los Angeles approved plans for a pool and a bathhouse in the west part of the San Fernando Valley in a white neighborhood. But in the east part of the San Fernando Valley, where there were people of color, a lot of black people, a lot of Latinos, all they got was a wading pool. The disparity is so obvious to us now, but it just seemed to be the thing to do 50 years ago. Well, let me go to caller Betty in San Francisco. Hi, Betty. Join Hi. us. Hi, thank you. Sorry, I'm trying not to cry. Oh. I uh, I grew up in um, next uh, across MacArthur Boulevard from Glen Echo Park in Maryland in the northwest suburb of uh, right outside Washington, D.C., um, <clears throat> My my friends and I went every day to the swimming to the swimming pool at Glen Echo Park, which was not public. It was a private amusement park. It was not a fancy place, and I remember it being really cheap because we couldn't afford. We, we, we weren't we did, we weren't well off. We couldn't afford me to go to a club or something, um, and it was so wonderful. It was so much fun. We spent every day in the summer at that pool. I don't remember. Being, I don't remember if there were black kids there. I'm just horrified that probably there weren't, and probably there was, but I don't know. I don't remember. Mm. Um, anyway, is that is that what's making so you emotional, Betty? Was, yeah. Sorry. That's what's making you emotional, Betty. The fact that you can't remember if there were children, black children. Uh, yes, and that's disturbing to me. That I don't remember. <laughs> Well, I remember that there were very few black kids in my public school. Uh, well, but yeah. Well, Betty, thanks very much for um, sharing your story. I I really appreciate it, and and it sounds like you had some wonderful experience, and it's really affecting you to to think about this history that Heather and Pat are bringing forward. Daniel writes, my high school had a public pool and lots of kids came during the summer. It was wonderful here in Berkeley. I used to run track as an adult, padded lanes. It was great exercise. People all over Berkeley came, brought their kids. Now high schools are gated and closed to the public. What a waste of recreational resources. Very sad. You know, Heather, you have sort of touched on this, but there has been this other stat about how also 
there are just great, there's greater lack, I guess, of public pool access in rural areas as well, and issues with drowning in rural as opposed to urban or suburban areas. Um, I think I saw a stat of one and a half times more likely to drown than people in cities. Is this connected to, you know, lack of available resources, but but people being or trying more risky bodies of water, ones that may not be as safe, um, to be able to get some swimming in, to be able to cool down? Yeah, I, I I do believe that what we're seeing there with these disparities are the kinds of disparities that we see across the board in terms of public investment, right? Rural areas are much less likely to, you know, even have sidewalks, right? So the things that kids do are going to be both more bucolic, perhaps in a rural area, but also there there is a danger because of the public disinvestment. Um, yeah. And- in, you know, in The Sum of Us, I write about the way that race has always shaped the government's willingness to invest in the public good. And so you see disparities by region in the South, where there's you know, many fewer public pools now today because of the way that racism drained the pools in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, the kinds of private swim clubs that the uh, that the caller uh, so emotionally recalled really did crop up in the wake of public pool integration. Uh, in fact, the the amazing uh, book called Contested Waters, which really goes into the the history of uh, the the segregated history of, of public swimming, uh, tallied up over 100 uh, private swim clubs that cropped up in the Washington D.C. area in the wake of public pool integration. And so you see these these disparities between the have and the haves nots. And even if we think about the suburbs, I think it's important to always, when we think about the suburbs and the good life, remember that it wasn't an accident that those suburban towns were segregated, right? This was government policy to encourage with massive subsidies and tax breaks and public policy, the creation of whites only suburbs, right? And so it's not just an accident that if you got a suburban house, whoa, well, you had room for a public uh, private backyard swimming pool, but that all your neighbors were white. That was uh, segregated exclusionary government policy that created that disparity. Yeah, and then again, the, the part of your title that just talks about how it hurts us all, I'm thinking about, you know, low swimming proficiency rates broadly in the US because with closed down pools rather than integrate them. You just have fewer and fewer people who are learning to swim. So what can be done about this lack of public pool infrastructure, lack of abilities to swim across the board, the major drowning rates that we're seeing in this country and that it remains a leading cause of death, one of the leading causes of death among children and adolescents. I want to bring into the conversation Lori Davies, a California Assembly member who represents the uh, 74th District. That includes parts of Orange and San Diego counties. Assembly member Davies, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. So you are trying to get more young people learning to swim and proposed a bill to do that. How would your bill have done that? Uh, and, and thank you so much for having me on. The bill that I had was I had co-authored Assembly Bill 1056, basically just to address the great disparity in our community. And my goal is 
that, you know, kids in underserved communities learn how to swim. And so what this would do is provide a grant program that uh, would go ahead to, it could be local um, cities, it could be county, but it would give money to be able to teach them how to swim. And they had in um, North San Diego, uh, Supervisor Desmond had done a grant like that uh, a couple years ago, and he was able to, by $250,000, go and teach up to 8,000 kids how to swim as well as help with junior lifeguarding and water safety lessons. And you look at 8,000 kids, that's huge. Mm. So what is the status of your bill now, the effort to get grant funding for teaching more young people to swim? Well, we had to put a hold on it right now due to the deficit that we have right now in regards to um, the budget. So we're hoping to bring that back next year. And shows like yours really are helping getting the word out. You know, I I don't think people realize, um, you know, the disparity and, you know, where the equity is. And especially when we're talking about drowning, which is 100% preventable, and, and they've proven that if someone has formal swim lessons, it reduces the likelihood of drowning by 88%. And when we've got 4,000 people drowning every year, I mean, just think of the lives that we could be saving. Yeah. Do you think more public pools would help, having more public pools? Absolutely, I do. Um, Like your other caller, I grew up in Wisconsin, and we had county pools, and that's where everyone learned to swim. Uh, It was pretty much free to go to. And I think the problem is, when it comes to the county, you know, the county's job are social um, uh, projects and programs. But we've put so much money into other programs, including the homelessness, that that really kind of gets left on the side. And, you know, you work a lot with the firefighters and, you know, just the life that we can save and the cost as well. I really would like to see us opening up more public swimming pools. Well, Assemblymember Davies, appreciate you coming on and letting us know about your bill. We'll keep an eye on it um, to see if it has better luck next session. I certainly hope so. Thank you for your time. Lori Davis, Assemblymember representing Orange and San Diego counties. Um, let me go next to caller Fabiola in Berkeley. And again, let me remind listeners that you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 by posting at KQED Forum on our social channels or by emailing forum at kqed.org. We're talking with the LA Times' Pat Morrison and with bestselling author Heather McGee, who have both looked at the impact of the loss of public infrastructure like public pools on all of us. Fabiola in Berkeley, join us now. Fabiola, you're on. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. So I did grow up in Southern California. Uh, we landed in Hollywood. We were immigrants. We landed in Hollywood, and we literally went to a swimming pool. It was very um, – uh, it was not segregated. Uh, but my mother pulled us out, I mean, early on because, you know, there was poop floating in the in the pool, and my mother said no more uh, because my little sister got sick. But then later on, she enrolled us at uh, – when we moved – uh, and we moved to Inglewood, and we went to El Camino Community College to take swimming lessons there. But that ended in, you know, we didn't get the classes in 1979 because Proposition 13 kicked in, and now the community college was charging way more money. I think she, my mother in 1977 mm. was paying $0.10 cents per lesson. Yes. And 
And Proposition 13 came in, and she could no longer afford to give five kids swimming lessons. So that's my story with swimming oh. pools. Well, Fabiola, thanks for, for sharing that. You're, you're bringing in an important point. I, I mean, so I think what you're hearing are, are people who really feel like they benefited from having public pools. But it does feel daunting, I guess, as a solution to try to build more public pools in California, just given the land, the resources that are required to do it, to maintain it, maybe to insure it. I know that there are fears of liabilities because we're talking about drowning, drowning and you need to make sure that you have lifeguards and so on. But but Pat Fabio is also bringing in how Prop 13 basically crushed local entities' ability to provide these kinds of public resources. So wondering if you could just talk a little bit about whether you think realistically we can in California, you know, build a lot more public pools. It's very hard to reverse engineer public infrastructure. And I know I used a lot of boring <laughs> jargon <laughs> words in that sentence. But, Not at all. <laughs> but, but it really is when, as you point out correctly, land is so expensive in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, which are the places where you may need these services more given the density and the impact uh, on people who live in the city. So that's one obstacle. You talked about liability, the lawsuits that have come down the pike when pools have been closed and yet kids will scale the fences and get in, in any case, and uh, oftentimes get injured and, uh, and the lawsuits ensue. And then we've got the question of drought. Even a private pool um, takes a lot of water. I mean, the, the industry, the pool industry likes to say, well, it requires no more water than a lawn does to keep up a backyard pool. But now people are tearing out their lawns because of the drought. It just seems profligate to have that kind of, you know, mm. ink looking lawn. And so an, an uncovered swimming pool can lose 20,000 gallons a year to evaporation. And so the drought is, I think, exacerbating this sense that well, we can't have pools, and therefore public pools have a liability issue, a cost issue, a real estate issue, and now the drought as well. Though I imagine if you had a public pool, you wouldn't do a backyard pool, and you wouldn't have like millions of these pools losing as much water as you're talking about. But I think it's sometimes hard for people to make that connection. Um, we're talking with Pat Morrison, Heather McGee, and with you, our listeners about public pools and about the benefits that they provide and why those benefits are sorely needed now. And we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how to make safe swimming spaces more accessible as half the population lacks swimming skills and drowning continues to be one of the leading causes of death of children. We're talking about the history of public pools and the reason behind their decline as they do offer one potential solution. Heather McGee is author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Pat Morrison is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts on public pools. The listener writes, I remember as a kid, the De Anza College Pool was a heavenly oasis that I welcomed on a hot day. It was the nicest public pool I'd ever seen at that point. Then my best friend's parents put a pool in their backyard and that changed everything. Let me go to Gabby in San Jose. Hi, Gabby. Join us. Hi. Um, I have two stories. One is I grew up in the mission, and my mom and aunt couldn't swim at all and were afraid of the water, but they were. it was really important. They sent us to the mission pool for lessons. And uh, now me and my brother are big swimmers and beach people, and it really changed us. Um, and Ooh. the other one is um, my dad had cancer. And his recovery was really important that we could walk to the local pool every day and he could go swimming. And it was really important for his like muscle recovery and all of that, that we wouldn't have really had. I think it really helped his health get better much more quickly. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Gabby. Um, Thanks for calling and sharing that. Mary writes, in response to the earlier caller, I am black and grew up in the D.C. area. I have a distinct memory of my family being turned away from Glen Echo Park. So yes, Glen Echo was segregated. I never learned how to swim and in fact never even had the chance to enter a playground until I was almost 10 years old. Jennifer Lopez is with us now, founder of Echo Aquatics, a Fresno-based organization that offers adult and child swim lessons and water sport coaching. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk to you a little bit about your efforts to try to get people who don't know how to swim or who have felt barriers to swimming Um, because it just hasn't been part of their family for generations. How you get them to learn to swim? What does Echo Aquatics do? So I I think going back to some of the earlier conversations, we cannot, even today in 2023, and I I will preface this by saying that I am a white American and I'm still learning, we cannot discredit the residual effects of systemic racism and what that does to generations. So one of the biggest lessons that I have come across, and this is through teaching both children and adults and having very good friends of color that cannot swim. Okay. And it's, it becomes generational. So it becomes, we play soccer. And so then I ask them, well, why does your family have three generations that play, let's say soccer, baseball, whatever sport it is, and they don't know. I talked to the mom and it's like, well, if I can't swim and my child starts to drown, I can't do anything about it. So they embrace these other sports to stay healthy. But then even going back to the status aspect, you know, you talk about um, pools and backyards being a status. And and let's look at Jay-Z. Everyone knows who Jay-Z is. He's this, you know, amazing businessman. He's famous. He had a pool in his backyard and didn't learn to swim until he was 53 years old and he had his daughter blue and he wanted to make sure that he could help her if something were to happen, you know, in his own backyard. So it goes beyond 
you know, status and it goes into generational, I don't want to say traditions because it's, you know, traditions I think of like my, my mom's chocolate chip cookies, but it becomes traditional and you have to look at, okay, well, how am I going to break this family's tradition? Hmm. Uh, and do you want to talk about one of the strategies that you employ to do that? Maybe just give us an example. Yeah. And, and so for me, what I did, I, I grew up in Fresno. I went to Fresno high school. I swam and I played water polo. I was very poor. I could swim, but I wouldn't say I was water safe. There's four aspects of being truly water safe. I ended up joining water polo and, you know, through that program, I become, I have a love of the water and I have a love of sports and what that can do for a kid. My senior year, my father drowned to death. Oh my gosh. It was a different situation. But what it did is it prompted me to look beyond myself and understand drowning. I move away from Fresno. I live in the Bay Area. Come back 18 years later, I start coaching at that high school. During that time, the demographic of the school has changed substantially, just like Fresno. It's it's predominantly minority kids. But why are the teams predominantly white? And I start to think that's really odd. That's a really big mismatch. So I start to build in things that I would consider giving equity. I start to learn and I'm a very direct person. So I start to have my kids help me. And kids are really amazing at knowing when something is genuine and healthy and they will recruit and they will get the word out all by themselves. But one of the big things in sports, and especially for female athletes, is they have to be training year-round if they're going to be competitive, especially if they're going to be able to get scholarships from Title IX in college. So I created my swim club, Echo Aquatics. And because I was coaching at this school that's low-income, and then I have my own emotional, you know, my own emotional experiences with not being able to afford it, I set up my club so that my kids would not pay. So they would be training year round. But like you said, insurance is expensive. I had to buy equipment. I was paying the school district to use the pool. So I started to add adult programs. And this is where I personally, it's one of the best moments of my life where you have a 15 year old kid who I employ now because the other barrier I was running into is upperclassmen would start to quit their sports to go and work. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to do all these things? But I really want this to work. So I had my athletes, I employed them to, you know, teach water aerobics, teach the swim lessons. I always kept the adult lessons because I think it's more comforting for an adult to learn from an adult. But when you see a 15 year old kid learning to teach water aerobics and you have these women in their seventies, we only had one man, I'm not trying to generalize, (laughs) embrace it and want to see this kid grow. It becomes, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. And so what happened for us is my program ballooned. So I ended up having people pay monthly fees that never showed up just because they wanted the money to contribute. It was coming full circle. But the systemic part is what really is something I'm still struggling with and trying to figure out how to overcome. This particular high school has another club there. They're an adult-only affluent club that demographic does not match the population of the school. They made a donation and went to someone high up in the district because they didn't like what I was doing because they felt that they served adults and they felt that me sharing the pool with the high school kids in my club, because that would give me more priority, 
wasn't fair. Mm. So my club ended up being pushed out of this particular high school. There's a whole change.org petition. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. You have kids going to board meetings and letters, but that's systemic. Yeah. That would not happen. You're just highlighting and underscoring just this, the accessibility issues that continue to exist today. Um, Another listener, Mark, writes, racism runs deep in California public investments, even in the Bay Area. In Berkeley, the Willard Pool, South Berkeley, was filled with sand in 2009 for financial reasons. The King Pool in North Berkeley, built in the same year as the Willard Pool, 1964, remains open and operating today. Uh, Another listener writes, Aaron, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. We lived in apartments in what is now known as West Hollywood. And during those hot summers we had in the 60s, we had no air conditioning. And our saving grace was being able to go to the gardener pool for 25 cents and have a cool, wet, fun-filled, kid-filled afternoon. It was wonderful. It was filled with all kinds of kids from the neighborhoods. My brother and I learned to swim at the YMCA in Hollywood. Also, um, thinking about this... Heather McGee, I'm reminded of a show that we did on on air conditioning and how air conditioning contributes to making the earth hotter to air condition. And one of the recommendations was access to more publicly cooled spaces to mm. reduce demand for these, you know, sort of energy sucking and also uh, greenhouse gas releasing releasing technology. So there's a real climate benefit that we haven't touched on that we would broadly benefit from as well. If we had greater public infrastructure investment for ways for people to cool down, it sounds like. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it really is a significant issue as uh, heat waves become more of a common feature of our summers. Um, we simply got to have a free and low cost way for people to cool down. And if you look at the maps of who has the um, you know the, the hottest areas that they live in, the the lowest level of shade cover and green space. Um, it is a total map of you know privilege and race, and you can see the distance between uh, resident in disinvested green space communities um, to recreation to those kinds of public resources, mapping right on to the kind of heat maps that have been done of places like Southern California. And so this is a climate equity and climate mitigation issue. And we've been sort of talking about this in lots of different ways, but do you wanna just talk about how public, in like the <laughs> the idea that the a public good, right, is something mm. that like loses investment. The, the broader ripple effect of that impact on just general support for public goods. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, although this conversation may make it seem like I'm not an expert in recreation or swimming or any of that, right? Right. I wrote this some of us because I wanted to know why we can't have nice things in America, right? And why we can't have universal childcare and paid family leave and debt-free college and um, green jobs and jobs that pay enough. And, and I've worked for two decades in in economic policy. And more often than not, it was racist headwinds that were keeping us back from investing in the kinds of public structures and public goods and public policies that would make all of our lives better. And so in I discovered the extent of the draining of pools in this country, um, not because I was really interested in swimming, but because I saw 
that it was a metaphor for what happened to the entire kind of American dream, right? Which was really built on massive public subsidies and public goods in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, free college, subsidized housing, subsidized uh, transportation, high wage union jobs, highly regulated labor markets and financial markets, all of which had a muscular role for government and all of which happened under a basically a whites only regime. And I talk about all the different ways that there was this general bipartisan um, you know, support for the idea of government acting in the public economic interest when the public was defined as only white people. And when you could sort of create this sort of whites only club out of public goods, there was large levels of support, both political support and financial largesse for these kinds of sort of nice things. And once the pool of public resources and pool of citizenry became more integrated in the wake of uh, immigration law changes in 1965, in the wake of uh, demographic change and civil rights movement and the women's movement and the queer movement, you began to see more of a shrinking of the public resources, more of a retreat into the private sphere where people could still have their old hierarchies and exclusions. But ultimately, and California, of course, is a great example of this, that retreat from the public good has created massive costs, right? You can see uh, the, the history of racism in the housing shortage. You can see the history of racism in Prop 13 and in the shift from free college in California to the debt for diploma system and all of the economic um, aftershocks that are coming from the indebted generation. Yeah. Let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum and I'm Mina Kim. Well, this listener writes right on point. I was a white kid with no money, so had no access to area, quote, country clubs. Glen Echo was ordered to integrate. They closed the pool, so poor white kids and all black kids had nowhere to go. Let me go to Carol in Oakland. Carol, you're on. Yeah, uh, good morning. Um, first, I want to thank um, Heather for her book. Um, I actually started it and never finished it, but it just came up on my Libby, so I'm looking forward to listening <laughs> to it. But I did at least get to the part about the pools. Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and was I'm realizing how lucky I was to my parents insisted. I'm African-American. I'm just a recently retired educator. Um, and I learned to swim at the public pool. Um, and I'm really the only person in my family that has maintained it. And I now live in Oakland. I've been swimming ever since I've lived out here. But I also grew up swimming in like rivers and ponds and all that kind of stuff. And I was always the only black kid. And I was always, and I'm usually one of the few black people at the public pool. And now I belong to a swim club and that happened over the COVID just trying to get a place to like get off zoom and just go take care of myself. But all that to say, I was taking a a sculpture class and I decided to do a sculpture about me as a swimmer. And I was looking up all this, um, this uh, information about segregated pools and blah, blah, blah. And I did this mixed media piece with me swimming up the middle of this, this lane. And then on the buoys, it has all the things that have kept African-Americans out of water. And it was everything from our first experiences coming over on the boats and being thrown over board to segregated pools and all of that. And then on the other side of the lane, it has all of our new experiences um, with um, Olympic swimmers and the Howard Swim Club and uh, 
anyway, all of this prompted me that in addition to finding about making waves. And I don't know if that was mentioned because I've been on hold and wasn't being able to listen. Uh, making waves, which Afro Outdoors, Outdoor Afros is promoting, which is also mm-hmm. to get more kids of color to swim. And all of this is just prompting me because I was trying to figure out what to do in retirement that I'm going to get my um, swim instructor's license because I really <laughs> want to teach swim and adults, particularly that look like me. And I also, just because of the changes I saw, some of my students, I took them to get swim lessons and to watch their confidence grow and to watch them start to enjoy the water because I've just immensely enjoy being in the water and I just wish more Americans had that opportunity. (laughs) Yay, Carol, so glad you're going to be a swim instructor. Um, The listener writes, I grew up both in New York City, Queens and in the San Fernando Valley. In New York, there was a public pool that my family would take us to. There was always community around these bodies of water, a place for black and brown people like me to enjoy the water during a hot and humid summer day. Public pools are a great resource for communities for all backgrounds. I totally support more public pools. By the way, love Heather McGee's book, The Some of Us, and thank you for this program. I love that point, and and we just have a minute left, and it is the final point. It is just the social benefit of a public gathering space that can invite people who don't normally interact to be around each other, Heather, that I think is also the power of the public pool, whether as metaphor as, or as something else. That's exactly right. You, you may lose out um, on a swimming lesson if you uh, are in a community that's lost its public pool due to racism, but that entire community has lost out on a way for people to get to know each other, to see each other as human beings, to create a civic space. It's why we call this social infrastructure. And it's just as important as roads and bridges. Well, Heather McGee, thanks for coming on and really appreciate having you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Heather McGee, the book is The Sum of Us. Pat Morrison of the LA Times, thank you as well. Uh, Happy to be here. Really appreciated the California lens. And Jennifer Lopez, thanks so much for sharing your experiences as a swim instructor. Thank you. And with Echo Aquatics, that's Echo Aquatics, a Fresno-based organization. And thank you, Juan Carlos Lara, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your reflections and memories of public pools. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.